This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right. And three, two, one. It is 9.30 in my watch. And I'm sure it's in yours as well. So let's go ahead and get started on time. What do you say? Yes? All right. Well, it is, uh, it is great to be here at GYC. My last GYC was in 2006. It was in Seattle. Did anyone go up to Seattle? You weren't even born. No, no. It was, no, 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 no. It doesn't go that far back. But uh, all of you, were, most of you were, were um, at a younger age. But that was the last time I was at a GYC. And uh, and it is a joy to be able to be back in this context, back in this environment where we come together and we challenge each other, we grow, we pray, we are refreshed spiritually and equipped to be able to go back, back to our land, back to our areas and be able to make an impact. Um, my name is Christian Martin and I am a pastor in Virginia in Northern Virginia at the Living Hope Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, where it also is a school of evangelism, uh, where Elder Mark Finley and Elder Chris Holland and others are instructors, and they serve uh, there at the school. Um, if you are interested in what they offer, you can go to their website. It's Hope Lives 365. In fact, in our exhibit area, there is a booth uh, for the school of evangelism that we have there. And it's called Hope Lives 365. And uh, you can check it out. And they, um, they offer courses um, on evangelism. You know, training churches, lay people, how to be effective witnesses, evangelists. And, uh, and the courses are actually free. There's no cost to enroll in these courses. They're free. Um, and all you need to be able to, all you need to take care of then is your lodging. And, um, and they also serve a, a meal, a full meal a day. And so it's, it's, it's quite, quite a, a ministry. And, uh, and we invite you to check it out so you can take advantage of it. All right. Well, again, it is my honor to have this opportunity to share with you a subject that I believe is in line with the theme for our conference here, here in Louisville, Kentucky. Can you tell me what the theme is? Let's say it together. By... Many or by few. By many or by few. You know, Jesus himself spoke these words. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And if I might add, be demonstrated in our postmodern world by many or by few as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. Let me start with the story before we launch in and have a prayer. You know, it was in 1996 that I decided to be a student missionary with Adventist Frontier Missions, AFM. How many of you are familiar with AFM? Okay, most of you are? Good. Um, I, I went with John Baxter. Yeah, some of you know John. <laughs> uh, in fact, he's here at the GYC conference. I saw him yesterday. And he's at the booth with AFM. And, uh, and I decided to be a missionary with AFM to Papua New Guinea, PNG. 
that's what I signed up for. And, and I went through the training in Berrien Springs and, uh, and then returned to my grandmother's house for, to wait for the embassy, the PNG embassy, to issue my visa. The reason I went to my grandmother's house is because my parents were missionaries in the Philippines. And so I went there to stay while I waited for the visa. They said it would take approximately one month. So I waited and waited. So in the meantime, I settled in my grandmother's place. She lived in an assistant living complex. It's about 12 stories high and um, several residents there. And within days that I was there, I, I interacted with a few of the senior citizens there. And I, I was invited to lead out in a Bible study group that was held um, there in the afternoon. And, and I went prepared to lead in a study in reg regarding how to make wise decisions, choices in life. And why did I choose that topic? Because I was a young adult. I was a, you know, a sophomore in college, and, and I went prepared to present this, looking at the world through the lens of a young college student. How to make choices in life. Suddenly you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> When I arrived at the first session, I was pleased to meet a dozen or so aged residents, no younger than 75 years old. One was in her 90s. And believe you me, I immediately <laughs> realized <laughs> that my choice of study was not necessarily the most relevant to a group of people who are now only reminiscing of choices made in life, as in past tense, and now they're just waiting for their time in life to expire. And I sensed that context rather quickly. And... I ended up immediately changing my content due to the context. And I spoke, and I believe that God, 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 it was a God thing, because I, I, I felt impressed to speak on the assurance that one can have of eternal life, as written in, in, by Paul in 1 John 5.13, or John, rather, when he wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you, what? Have eternal life. And so here I was in this context sensing, believe the Holy Spirit gave me that sensitivity to sense that the people who are here in this room are individuals that have lived a long life and they may or may not have the assurance of eternal life as they anticipate their last breath. And so, so that's what I tackled. And by the end of the studies, there were some with tears in their eyes. Some of them actually thanked me because they could now have peace facing their tomorrow. It was, it was quite an eye-opening moment. 
They were able to contemplate because the content was relevant to that context. It was relevant for those who had come to the time of the end in life. And I want to tell you right now that that experience was a game changer for me. Because I realized right there and then that all types of evangelism always takes place in a context. So this is where it gets interesting because by the end, I, I, ended, I ended up waiting three months for any response from the Papua New Guinea embassy. And it finally came. It finally came, but not with what I was expecting to hear. They denied my visa application. Denied it because of my job description and the way it had been worded and various other issues. And so I found myself agonizing in prayer, saying, God, why? You know, I've set apart a whole year as a student out of my studies at Southern to, to, to go as a student missionary. And now this. Why, God? Why? Lord, what is your purpose? Well, for three months, I had been involved in this Bible study with these residents at the complex. And during that time, I challenged my mind to actually identify context and present accordingly. I later understood why. You see, AFM immediately upon receiving the news that I would not be given a visa to Papua New Guinea, they began to look for a different project. And John Baxter in India agreed to welcome two student missionaries. And Josh and I, Josh Long, who's also here at the GYC convention, I saw him last night, we both quickly put things in motion. Our passports were literally sent from one embassy to the next. And within a week, I had a visa to India. And little did I realize that I was going to be stepping into a postmodern context, into, into the thick of it. I later understood why. That although I had completed AFM's summer training, I had just completed God's training in realizing that all types of evangelism take place in a context and that I must be fully aware of the context if I expect to be an effective soul winner. And so, so that experience to me was divinely appointed so that I would spend a year in India being more sensitive than ever before of the context, the worldview that I was in, in order to be able to be effective as a missionary and as a soul winner. Again, it's my honor to be here and to have this opportunity to share at this convention the theme by many or by few as taken from 1 Samuel 14, 6, where it says, and Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us 
nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And as we find ourselves in the middle of a cultural uncircumcised phenomenon, so to speak, is quite perplexing and challenging as we're going to discover. We can be confident that the ancient words spoken by Jonathan still ring true today. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving today's postmodern generation, whether by many or by few. Can you agree to that? God will get the work done. God is not concerned about being outnumbered. God will get the work done by many or by few. And you're going to be shocked, maybe today, that to be among those that God can use, you don't need to be an expert in postmodernism. You don't need to be an expert in, 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 in understanding and the, the, the complex mindset. Yes, an awareness, of course. But God is looking for something much more, much deeper than just a mere awareness. God is looking at the heart. And we're going to examine these things in that context. So as we get started, let us pray. Let us pray that God would speak to us. Tell us what we need to hear. Tell us why he brought us here. Reveal to us his will. That it may be for God's glory that it would be all of us that he uses to save today's postmodern world. Would you bow your heads together as we pray? Father in heaven, we just want to pause to acknowledge you as we, as we have come here, Lord, because there is a deep burden in our hearts that compels us, Lord, to want to speak, to want to share, to want to lead others into a saving relationship with you. Lord, in our heart of hearts, we ask that you would place within us your spirit, your zeal, your enthusiasm, and teach us, Lord, how to make a difference, how to impact lives for eternity. There might be some here today, Lord, that aren't necessarily quite there yet. We're not all here because there's a burning sensation in our hearts. Some of us, Lord, need that fire ourselves. And we ask that you would minister to us as well. And so, Lord, meet us now. Speak to our hearts. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every type of evangelism takes place in a context. It was the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, who penned these words. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to reap with that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. 
a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast out stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. It was in the late 1950s when Pete Seeger, some of you may or may not recognize that name, but he wrote a song, a song entitled Turn, Turn, Turn. To everything there is a season. It was originally released in 1962. The lyrics, except for the title and a few lines at the very end, are almost taken verbatim from this passage we just read from the book of Ecclesiastes. And this song became an international hit in 1965 when it was adopted by the American folk rock group called The Birds Precisely at a time, get this, precisely at a time when postmodernism was emerging into the cultural scene. A period of time when a way of thinking was radically being replaced by another. There's several, there's several different views of when the shift took place from modern to postmodern. There's some ideas, some theories we may touch on that a little bit today, but, but it was in the 60s, 70s when, when this really came to the forefront. A worldview which embraces, as King Solomon would also say, everything under the sun. The irony of that. Postmodernism would be a, a radical shift in embracing everything under the sun. And if I might also adapt the preacher's words... To everything, there is a context, a time for every type of evangelism under heaven. Whether it's public, personal, or anything in between. You call it what you want. Evangelism is evangelism, period. Let's not be critical of one type of evangelism in favor of another. Because we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Evangelism is evangelism, period. Whether it's public, personal, or any other innovative type of evangelism. And today, as we examine this, for today's generation of, of postmodernism, we're going to examine this during this seminar. And, and the premise that all evangelism takes place in a context is, in fact, biblical. And there's a reason why I'm emphasizing this, this main point. Because we have to understand that not all contexts or, or all circumstances or all people groups or all cultures or societies will fit the same or respond to the same type of evangelism. You have to recognize the context in order to determine the, the form or type of evangelism that will best serve that context. So again... It's a biblical perspective. Let me show you how. A few examples. Just a few. For instance, take Paul. The Apostle Paul. I'm going to give you at least two biblical case studies or examples that reveal that in order to effectively conduct 
soul winning, one must be fully aware of the context that you're evangelizing in. And if you aren't, you might be, it might be a mismatch that will not lead to the results that are intended. So, Paul. Paul evangelized publicly. So we can call Paul a, a public evangelist. Okay? And he publicly evangelized to the Athenians on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to come to Acts 17. And uh, if not, no problem. Just, just follow along. Because Paul, he spoke in their context when he proclaimed the unknown God. Okay, what was Mars Hill? Let's, let's, let's kind of get a little context here. Mars Hill is the Roman name for a hill in Athens, Greece. It's the hill of Ares or Areopagus. Areopagus. Ares was the Greek god of war. And according to Greek mythology, this was the hill, the place where Ares stood before other gods for committing murder. And he was brought to trial before other gods. And it's all thick with mythology. And the Mars Hill was the spot where all this supposedly took place. And this hill was also a meeting place, very known among the philosophers, a place that was considered the highest court in Greece for civil, criminal, and religious matters. It was also a place, this is where Paul finds himself, a place where philosophy, religion, and law were discussed. And it's here, this very place, in this location, where we find one of Paul's most important gospel presentations in a city, according to verse 16, there in Acts 17, 16, a city given over to idols, given over to idols. So here you have Paul. He's not preaching to Jews. He's not preaching to, to the, the common people of the land. He's preaching in a city given over to idols, and he's speaking to educated philosophers. And it was this altar to the unknown God and the religious idolatry that Paul used as a starting point in proclaiming to them the one true God and how they could be reconciled to him. And so Paul was very in tune, fully aware of his context. And what provided the context in which Paul's public evangelism effectively took place? The culture, the culture. It was nothing more than the culture, the Greek culture, is what dictated Paul's method and Paul's content and the way that Paul evangelized. It was the Greek culture. Hmm. So Paul was in tune with his audience, a group of philosophers on Mars Hill, and he spoke in a way that was appropriate to that particular circumstance. So if you look at the greater context, some, some of those that day believed they believed and were saved. There were others that mocked Paul and rejected his message. And still others were open-minded 
There is no record or there's no reason to believe that they necessarily made a choice either to go to the left or to the right. They, they desire to, to learn more, but they were open-minded. We can only hope that those who were open-minded were later convinced of the truth and also repented and believed. The point is this, is that Paul recognized the context delivered accordingly. The response given to that message was both one that responded and is received and they were converted or they rejected while others were open-minded and undecided. It is interesting because the results of evangelism or, or, or our work in any given context can vary and the results are up to God. We just must do our part and do it faithfully. Now, here's another case in point. This is much more, a much more personal setting, much more personal. It's when Jesus initiated a dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. When doing so, we'll notice that he addressed her context. Remember, every type of evangelism takes place in a context. The story is found in John chapter 4. So can you go to John chapter 4? And we'll take a look at a few details in this chapter. We're just setting the, the, the ground fundamentally to be able to dive into the context of postmodernism. But we have to understand this foundation first. So in John chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So, two things that we must understand. Two things that are very significant. First, first, she was a Samaritan. She was a Samaritan. Note this. Paul, uh, John, in, in, in verse 9, comments this. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that is true. That is true. She said herself. She was right. They, Jews and Samaritans did not interact. By chance and much less by coincidence, or intentionally rather, they, they did just did not have any dealings with one another. During the first century, you see, Samaritans were a mixed race. Ah, that's why the Jews felt the way they did. They were considered foreigners, and they were more liberal than Jews. There, were, there was much animosity between the two of them. Not surprisingly, a Jewish saying went something like this, May I never set eyes on a Samaritan! This was a very common saying in, those, in that time. Second, not only was she a Samaritan, but second, she was, her gender presented an obstacle. She was a woman. And normally, Jewish men did not speak to women in public. Look at verse 27. It's funny because it reads that his disciples marveled that he's talked to a woman. It's right there in the text. They marveled. And if you take that Greek word marveled and see how it's used in other contexts of the Bible, it's, it's quite astonishing how this really impressed the disciples that Jesus was talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman on top of that. Many Jewish men started the day with a prayer to God, expressing thanks that they were neither a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. William Parkley even tells of a segment of the Pharisees known as the bleeding and bruised Pharisees. 
Have you ever heard about them? The bleeding and bruised Pharisees. When they saw a woman approaching, they would close their eyes. Hence, running into things and <laughs> getting bruised. No, this is, it sounds like a joke, but it's actually not a joke. They, 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 they did not set their eyes on a Samaritan woman. And so, yet Jesus, though it was a Jewish taboo to do so, went completely contrary to that. He set his eyes on a Samaritan woman and began interacting with her. But what do we notice here? That Jesus was willing to step out of his comfort zone. He was willing to step out of his comfort zone and make a request to a Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? As recorded in John chapter 4, this would be the beginning of, of Jesus' longest one-on-one -on -one conversation recorded in all of Scripture. This is the longest one-on-one -on -one conversation by Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. Even longer than his conversation with Nicodemus. There's more content here recorded in John chapter 4. Conversation. Jesus engaged in conversation. Now, the detail mentioned in verse 8 seems almost incidental. If you read verse 8, the gospel writer records that the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Gone into the city to buy food. Now, you might just read through that and think nothing of it, except that it's actually a very significant statement. You see, normally, check it out, normally Jews did not eat food that was produced, touched, or even handled by Samaritans. They did not eat food handled by Samaritans. John Lightfoot, he was a rabbinical scholar um, in the 17th century, he wrote this. Let no Israelite eat one mouthful of anything that is, that is Samaritans. For if he eat but a little mouthful, he is as if he ate swine's flesh. This was the sentiment of, 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 of the Jew in, in, in even tasting a small mouthful. No doubt this was a reflection of Jewish sentiment traced back to earlier centuries. Yet it's recorded, and this is where I'm going with this, it's recorded that Jesus' disciples are buying food they're buying food in a city in Samaria. Hmm. Perhaps they were already beginning to be influenced by Jesus' caring qualities of character towards all people for whom he came to seek that he may save them. Jesus has interacted with his disciples in such a way that the disciples are recognizing their context, and responding in a winsome way. They're, 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 they're putting down the guard, being willing to step into an unfamiliar context for the purpose of saving somebody. In later circumstances, as recorded in Acts 4.13, 4, when observing the boldness of Peter and John, Certain Jewish leaders took notice that they had been with Jesus. 
my point is this, that during the three and a half years that he mentored his disciples, Jesus influenced them in many different ways, including a willingness to step outside of Jewish cultural expectations and religious norms in order to win souls. In other words, thinking outside of the box. Why? Because of their immediate context. How are we going to reach these people? What are we going to do? As Jesus demonstrated, it could mean putting down some expected norms and, and, and ways of doing things because we're not going to reach them if we don't. They were willing to step out of religious norms and expectations. Jesus understood what it was going to take to finish his father's work. And he did, and it was. And soul winning necessitates a willingness and a readiness to step out of our comfort zone. To step out of our comfort zone. As it was for Svetlana. She's a 37-year-old Ukrainian wife and mother who today lives in Tyson's Corner, Northern Virginia. In the area where I pastor there. She's a member of our church at Living Hope. And she started multiple small groups in a high complex, apartment complex, 35 stories high. And she began to, to interact with other mothers with children. And the interaction left, led to friendship, and the friendship has resulted in a total of about 20 different individuals with about the same number of children, about 20 children, coming to her two-room apartment multiple times, up to three times a week for social interaction, food, discussion, and Bible study. She is shy by nature, but she has a fire in her bones that made her bold to step out of her comfort zone. Again, willing, winning souls necessitates a willingness to step out of our comfort zones as did Christ. And the Apostle Paul also came to have the mind and heart of Christ when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. Make a note of this text. It's actually a key text as we consider how to win postmodern souls. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, where Paul writes that he desired to be all things to all people, that by all means he might win them. The New Living Translation, NLT, puts it this way. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save them. This passage describes how Paul made himself a slave to everyone. He limits his own rights and freedoms in order to connect with others. He becomes all things to all people so that some will be one to, to faith in Christ. The text even says he becomes weak for the sake of the weak. Now, before we depart from this text, I do want to address just one point. Biblical scholars actually disagree about what Paul means by the weak. He becomes weak for the sake of the weak. Some suggest that the weak refers to all ungodly people. 
and that Paul, in a sense, in a sense, lived as an unbeliever to reach unbelievers. Not necessarily that he lived in sin, but that perhaps he practiced or he, he shared in cultural practices that were ungodly in nature. They had their arguments. Now, given that Paul, given that Paul has said about the need, all that he said about the need to avoid sin, which he often writes about in his letters, to avoid sin and the appearance of evil, which comes from the writings of Paul himself, it seems unlikely that Paul would be sending out a mixed message. Let's be careful for the sake of ministering to postmodern that we don't take this verse to justify our mythology by, by doing things that would send a mixed message, that would result in a mixed message, um, and, and, and doing so by claiming that Paul did the same. Mm, not necessarily. What makes more sense in this context here is that the weak refers to those Christians, for example, who cannot bring themselves to eat meat offered to idols. That Paul identifies as, quote, weak. Paul counsels to become, to, or rather, he counsels to beware, to beware of becoming a stumbling block to those who are weak, to those whose faith in God's grace is not fully matured. In, in, in this case, Paul has opted out of eating such meat offered to idols in order to win the weak and avoid offending them or causing them to be spiritually confused. In other words, Paul recognizes or is aware of what behaviors and practices would be stumbling blocks to others. And in, in recognizing so, he adjusted his own behaviors to conform to those who are weaker for the sake of not being a stumbling block. So, Paul, five times he says that his aim is to win the people, to win the people, to win the people. In verse 19, that I might win the more. Verse 20, that I might win the Jews, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those that are without the law. In verse 22, that I might win the weak. And in each case, there's a particular context. So, all evangelism takes place in a context and for it to be effective and successful, one must understand the culture. In, Jer in the Jerusalem context, found in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, we have a context there as well. It's Jerusalem. And what do we see here? There's spirit-filled men and women. They're the 120 filled with the Holy Spirit. And who are they addressing? In that context, they're addressing religiously devout Jewish men and women and brethren the apostles are preaching now that they have crucified and put to death the anointed one. A reference to the Christ. Every Jew knew that the Christ meant the anointed one. And the anointed one was a reference to the Messiah. So here Peter and the rest preach a message that is very much geared towards the minds of the Jewish listeners. And Paul and Peter delivered a powerful message to Jews from every nation under heaven in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the results were amazing. If you read there the text, the, they witnessed 3,000 souls were baptized in one day. Now, oftentimes we hear the same type of soul winning reports. 
You've heard them. If you've heard them once, you've heard them, you've heard several, a dozen or more, of how reports that come in from Africa, from Asia, uh, from Latin America, reports that mass baptisms have taken place. And I remember hearing in 2015 that thousands packed in a stadium in Dominican Republic's capital to celebrate 3,052 baptisms in the stadium there in the capital after a series by Mark Finley. The one that I remember that I never forget when I first heard how astonishing it was to hear the report that in 2016, for example, a record of 95,890 were baptized in Rwanda after a two-week evangelistic initiative in over 2,000 sites across that African country. Quite astonishing. And if we look at the results of the global church, okay, I'm talking about the global church, a mass including all types of contexts, an average of 3,706 were added to the Adventist church family daily in 2017. 3,706 were added daily. That, that's a number of Pentecost proportions, right? But if you examine it a little closely, the highest percentages by far, if you look at the stats where, each, where the numbers came from, from each world division, you'll discover something that's interesting. The highest percentages by far were coming from very particular locations of the globe, namely Africa, Inner America, and South America. But why wasn't it happening more regularly in Western culture? Western culture, you don't see those kind of numbers. They're basically unheard of. Did Jesus intend for us to conclude that the harvest is truly great only in Brazil? That the harvest is truly great only in Kenya? Why aren't we seeing a great harvest there? Why are we seeing a great harvest, or rather, here? Are we blaming contemporary Western norms and values? You know, I can hear someone saying, you know, it can never happen in the United States of America with this strange cultural context called postmodernism. But wait a minute. Before we go any farther with this, if we preach the same message as did the early church in the first century, if we are preaching the word, and it's the word of God that we're preaching from to the multitudes, and if we depend on the same Holy Spirit that was poured out upon the early church in that first century, why can't we confidently expect the same results? Doesn't that bug you? If it's the same message, same Holy Spirit, why is it that we are not seeing the same response? Needless to say, the problem is not with the divine promise. Promises contained in the Holy Scriptures are promises made by the one who cannot lie. And they are given to us as much as they were to the 120 in the upper room. So if the problem is not with divine promises of power, is the problem then with the content found in this book called the Bible? Is that where the problem is? Is that where we've gone wrong? No, not at all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. There's nothing wrong with the content of the word. As long as we're preaching the word, the content is relevant to 
its listeners. The content is important and it's inspired. It's profitable, among other things, for doctrine or teaching or inst and instruction in righteousness. So if the inspired teachings are the same and the promises of divine power are the same, but the harvest in our Western territory is not as it was in the days of the early apostolic church. What is the problem? Is it outdated mythology? Is it the wrong evangelistic strategies? Well, I propose to you that the crux of the problem is not a problem with the message itself. It's not a problem with God's faithfulness to his promises. But first and fundamentally, the problem is within ourselves. The problem is within you, within me. Do you ever listen to pay close attention to the words that come out of your mouth? It was Jesus who said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When the challenge of winning postmodern souls is set before us, do we hear ourselves talk faith or doubt? Ellen G. White wrote in Mind, Character, and Personality, volume 2, page 419, she says, if you want faith, talk faith. She goes on to say, while words express thoughts, it is also true that thoughts follow words. If we would give more expression of our faith, we should have more faith. In other words, when today's generation of youth talks faith in the midst of a postmodern worldview, it will increase and strengthen faith. But when today's youth, generation of you, talks doubt in the midst of a postmodern worldview, it strengthens or increases unbelief. We can't reach those people. Let's, let's, go, let's go look for others that, that don't have that strange worldview because we can't break that code. It's a waste of time. Let's not even go there. We need to go to others. Hmm. What comes out of our mouth? You know, on a daily basis, we find ourselves in different arenas of circumstances where we can either express faith or unbelief. Faith or unbelief. It begins with the mind. It begins with the heart. It begins with how we express. What words do we express? Do we believe or do we unbelieve? Do we have unbelief? And it's unbelief that prevents God from doing mighty miracles. It's not going to happen in our United States. It's only happening in Africa and Asia. It can't happen here. Let's just, let's just forget it. Let's just advance the work overseas. But let's not even try here. It's a waste of time. I've heard this. But I've come to conclude that it's faith and belief in a God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or imagine that results in great and mighty miracles. And this is where it has to begin in our hearts, in our minds. So we have set the tone for what will follow now. And in order to best understand the context of postmodern thinking, which will be the heart of what we discuss, we must first understand the modern context that it emerged out of. The modern period. 
we have to understand what that was all about in order to better understand why postmodernism is with us today and where it actually came from. So the early modern period, the early modern period began approximately in the early 16th century. And it included notable historical milestones that included, for example, the European Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation. This was during the early modern period and the Industrial Revolution as well. Usually, though, when someone refers to the modern period, they mean the period from about 1900 to the Second World War. It was in the 19, early 1900s, early 20th century, to about the end of the Second World War. The modern period was a period in history. If you, if you, if you look at the whole line, timeline of history, the world is divided into various periods of time, of periods of history. And the modern period was defined, the characteristics that surfaced at the top was human reason, education, science, technology. In other words, man was dedicated to ideals. You laid out the facts on the table, laid them all, laid all the facts, and then you, you, you reasoned. You reasoned upon reflection, and, and you made logical conclusions based on the evidence. This, this, would, this would be the, 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 the heart of the modern mindset. You were logical. You looked at facts, and you made conclusions based on those facts. That's why we know the, 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 the famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Why? Because it was that modern age that, that, that recognized truth based on conclusions made by reason. And so modernists, they championed clarity and simplicity. That's what they were all about. Modernism provided an accurate, objective, and reliable foundation of knowledge. And so, so since those were the, the main characteristics, it's no wonder then that during this period we saw revolutionary political movements that surfaced in our history. For example, the American Revolution. Oh, the, it was a perfect storm. These, this, it was the climate where these kind of revolutions would take place. The French Revolution took place. The Russian Revolution. All of these took place during the modern period. Um, as well as the invention and rise of socialism, communism. You see the, you see the, the pattern here? All these, all these isms surfaced during this modern period. And they each established bold manifestos, you know, statements that outlined their visions of an improved future. So in essence, in essence, truth, exists independent of human consciousness and can be known through the application of reason. So, while the modern age, you know, produced all these technological advances and successes, guess what? They had their drawbacks as well. For example, the automobile. Mm, the automobile. It created a mobile society. Now, now we were advancing in faster speeds from west to east, and, but it also polluted the environment. 
So while modern technology might have, had improved, might have improved conditions in life, it trashed the planet with the burning of coal. It, it completely brought pollution to a whole new level. And consequently, philosophers and social critics began to question mankind's ability to produce a great society via human reason, knowledge, and technology, you see. And so in the years following the Second World War, this disillusionment was compounded by the rise of the communist ideology. You got the Vietnam fiasco there. You had the weapons of mass destruction that were now introduced, baby boomer youth rebellions, assassinations, political corruption, racial wars. See, you see how the tide is turning? Things are getting ugly. Things are turning ugly. There's, there's scam. There's corruption. There's war. There's assassinations. There's weapons of mass destruction. And all this is brought to us by, by this supposed enlightenment that is to improve the conditions of our globe and of our planet. Mm. And all these things, all the above, demonstrated as some argued, that the age of reason and enlightenment had produced very little in improving the condition of the human race. And so reason itself began to be seen as a specific Western tradition challenging other traditions that may have their, 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 their things that are as valid and necessary to improve life. What's this Western tradition why should it trump all others? And thus creating the perfect storm for the birth of postmodernism. You see, according to some theories, th theorists, postmodernism was a reaction. It was a reaction to modernism. It was a reaction. They, they've had enough. How, how much longer can we go like this? And now, an exact date for the establish, establishment of postmodernism is actually not easy. It's not identified. No one can claim that it took place after this period of time, necessarily. It was, a, it was a gradual transition. It did not begin to take root in the West and the United States until the 60s, 70s, and it's been progressing ever since. Some point to the Second World War, still others to the pulling down the Berlin Wall, to be even specific. Whenever it did occur, for all practical purposes, the modern age is over today. We are no longer living in the modern age. Right now, right here, when we leave Louisville, Kentucky, we're stepping into a, a postmodern world. Welcome to postmodernism. It's, it's a philosophy that says that absolute truth and solid concrete values do not exist. And instead, all beliefs and all perspectives are determined to be equally valid. So unlike the modern rationalist, the postmodernist will not challenge the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not going to challenge it. They're not going to challenge it. Instead, they'll say, yes, yes, oh, yes. Ah, but it's your truth. But it's yours. I, I, yeah, I, it sounds very, very, very exciting, but, but that's your truth. Hmm. I, I remember I got a taste of this in, in India because the, the basic, the basic um, fundamental principles of postmodernism 
has in fact been entrenched in, in the ancient religion of Hinduism. I remember stepping into this home in India as a student missionary with AFM and John Baxter there. And, and displayed on the wall was row upon row upon row upon row of all these images of these, these, these Hindu gods. Pictures of, they called them Lord. So there was Lord Shiva and Lord Vishnu and Lord Brahma and Lord Krishna. You, you get the picture, all these lords. And right smack in the middle was a picture of the Lord Jesus. It was his, his, his countenance, his picture that we often see even in our culture today. It's a picture of Jesus. And I said, my, you have a picture of, of Jesus. And the response was in broken English, yes, this is your Lord. Not my Lord, your Lord. You know, this is, this is your Lord. I have my Lord. We have our Lords. And the challenges to confront this ideology are real. In fact, they are unavoidable. We cannot run. We cannot hide. There is nowhere to hide. In fact, we should not run and should not hide. But we need to heed the words of Jesus when he said, Go, therefore. Research indicates that Americans under the age of 35 have been raised in a postmodern culture. They've been raised in this culture. They're not just simply entertaining this worldview. And, no, no, they've been raised by parents who've raised them in that postmodern mentality under the age of 35. And do you think it's a coincidence that it's those under the age of 35 that are slipping and leaving the church and saying, we're done with the church. It is those under the age of 35 in our Western culture that we're not getting to. We're not reaching them. It's, it's, it's upper level, upper, above age 35 that we're getting most, most people responding to our message. Is that a coincidence? I'm afraid not. And these are people that have been raised in a postmodern culture which have with many, many of them having distinctly different values and preferences than those in earlier generations that may still be responding to our message. Times have changed. Times have changed. And though we may be outnumbered, which we are, we must not be overcome with discouragement. When I went to India... I remember that first week there, I was gung-ho. I was ready to go into the streets of India and take the gospel to every single person that I cast my eyes on. But John took us down. He set us down. He said, oh, take it easy. Take it easy. No, 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 no. This is not the way we're, it's going to be done. You're going you're gonna to take slower steps, much slower steps, and you're going to befriend a few. You're going to choose a handful, and to them, you will spend time. You're going to pour your life into those few. And that would be the beginning of a journey that taught me a lot about evangelism and understanding the context that we work in. 
And I'm going to remind you of the words of Jonathan. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving this generation, whether by many or by few. So this concludes our first session in which we have just set the groundwork for understanding, first and foremost, that evangelism is not a one-shoe-fits-all approach to anyone and everyone that we share with. We have to put a pause, take a step back, and be fully aware of the context that our people are in. Be familiar with the circumstances. Recognize their mindset. And then put ourselves as much as necessary out of our comfort zones. In fact, I would even venture to say that to take the gospel to the world, particularly the postmodern world, it will necessitate stepping out of our comfort zones. It will necessitate doing things that we have never done before. And in our next session, we'll take a, look at the, take a closer look at the postmodern way of thinking and the modus operandi to be able to understand how to step into their world out of our comfort zones and win souls for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are, Lord, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to fulfill the Great Commission. You do not send us out on our own, but you equip us. And Lord, for your glory to be the most effective soul winners we can possibly be, because we don't have time to waste. We don't have time to go in circles and circles and waste times, wait months and years and going nowhere fast. We need to make progress because time is short. And so we pray that you would continue to, to reveal to us, give us understanding of the way to accomplish your good and perfect will. And that is to prepare a people for your soon coming, people from all nations, from all worldviews, May you continue to inspire us, Lord. Give us courage to step out of our comfort zones and to be able to work and serve you in the most effective way. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.